You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to today's event, Age-Friendly Design, Who Are We Designing For? This event sits within M Pavilion's theme of Design as a Human Right series. And I just want to acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and into the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anyone who is listening to this recording are meeting. My name's Catherine Brumwell, and I'm joined by a wonderful panel, and I'll introduce them as we go through this afternoon. I'll be your host today as founder of Young Seniors and Co, a concept that I've been working up prior to COVID that went into hibernation until today. While still emerging, Young Seniors and Co wants to bring a new set of voices into conversations and decisions about ageing. So what do I bring to these discussions? Firstly, a curious mindset, always a good start, and a strong background in health. Trained as a physio, I worked across clinical care and health startups, then health policy and advocacy, and I've always been comfortable with ageing. I grew up in a multi-generational family with my grandparents across the road, an aunt and an uncle, um, lots of brothers and sisters, and I just never thought about ageing as anything except normal. Moving into my uh, professional career, I worked in aged care and community health, particularly in regional and rural. And now I'm a self-titled self young senior the definition for which is very loose. You choose. And I have recently uh, done some postgraduate studies in the Masters of Ageing uh, course at Melbourne Uni, which is now defunct. Um, <laughs> yeah, not Melbourne Uni, <laughs> just the course. Um, so to, to set some sort of parameters, in government, I've noticed that the default for considering ageing has often been to bring forth policies that play to the fears of overwhelming tsunamis of pensioners and frail aged people needing to be in care. On the other hand, age has become a market segmenter's dream, calling out mantras and product placements for the never old and positive ad ageing advocates who suggest it's all up to the individual to be, to be and to stay healthy. And yet we know from both the statistics and the stories, none of these represent reality today. And they all play into using ageing and the aged interchangeably and pitting generations' needs against each other. So before I invite our guests to share their thoughts, and they're very varied, 
I'd like to ask you something. I'd like you to ask yourself silently. When you think of age, what comes to mind? When you think of ageing, what comes to mind? When you think of age-friendly design, what comes to mind? Okay, hold those pictures, hold those thoughts, hold those reflections in the background throughout this session. But let me share what's guided my preparation. Many people here have heard me use these phrases many times over. Age is the number of years lived since birth. Aging is the experience of living from birth to death, hopefully a long time between. Aging should not be used interchangeably with the aged and older age. It's far more broad than that. An age-friendly design is design accessible and relevant to all, age, all ages who are users. While biological senescence is definitely part of ageing, ask anyone who's in the older age group, the individual's experience is just so variable. So Young, Seniors and Co see the concept of chronological age as a poor driver for designing urban spaces. We would prefer us to consider what are our needs in common? But let's see what Nina has to say. Nina, I met Nina at a product launch. A launch of a product that was aimed at older people wanting to age in place. There, representing U3A that evening, Nina had been looking at age-friendly design framework that's been gaining in popularity in urban planning, both here, locally, and internationally. Today, she's going to give us a basic introduction, Primer 101, into age-friendly framework and its key elements and its application to a couple of Melbourne City Councils. Over to you. All right. <laughs> well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, and um, I'm very pleased to see such a wonderful mix here. So as um, Catherine mentioned, we met at the Melbourne Accelerator Program um, where somebody was uh, launching a product called UMPS, which was for allowing people to age in place. Uh, and that means that you stay put in your home, basically. Um, and I was the representative for U3A. So for those of you who don't know who, what U3A does, I'll just give you a little bit of a background. 
Um, I was representing the University of the Third Age. Um, for those of you who don't know, U3A was actually founded in France in 1973 and spread through Europe as an extramural university course run by academics and volunteers. So the good bit is you could go and learn, but you don't have to do any exams. Um, and a decade later, U3A was established in Victoria and now numbers around 35,000 members. U3A Yarra City has a membership of around 400 with a cohort spanning late 50s to 90s. So you can see what we mean when we say it's a big spread. Um, and most of those people would be in their late 60s and 70s. For the most part, U3As are great for people wanting to keep their brain going. Um, or if you're that way inclined, which I'm not, your body active with dancing, walking and bike groups. And normally courses are about things like history of architecture or American literature. But R3A was set up, set up at an active and healthy ageing group. And quite by accident, and Helen, who's in the audience, can attest to this, I joined. I was actually asked, I walked out of a wonderful lecture on Victorian architecture, and a friend of mine asked me if I could go and tell the group that um, she couldn't attend today, and could I just sort of keep it going and, and start talking about it? And that's how I got involved. We decided that the first thing to do was to look at what our local council, Yarra City Council, was doing. In looking at Yarra's active and healthy ageing strategy, 2018 to 2024, we came across the concept of the age-friendly city and a diagram that looked like a flower with eight petals. And that, my friends, was the beginning of my advocacy for age-friendly cities. The World Health Organization put together a framework which identifies eight areas of influence. Since 2007, the framework has been adapted to suit local situations. However, the essence of domains has remained the same. The scale and pace of improvements depends on local environments. For example, our neighbor, neighbor Asian cities like Singapore and Hong Kong have, in many ways, led the way. Perhaps because they have always had to be more inventive about using limited public space. Manchester in the UK is seen as a great model with strong leadership by a nationally recognised mayor and close relationships between city, university and community. And then closer to home, we have councils like Whittlesea and you're going to have to help me here, Burundara? Burundara. I've been practising. Um, Melbourne has not actually signed up, but it is committed to the principles all eight domains intersect, but can be viewed as two main spheres covering the social and built environment. So let me tell you what the flower domains are, and I'm going to use a prop. So, This is one that I bought earlier, not prepared earlier. I'm no good at that kind of thing. So let's start. The first one is outdoor spaces and buildings. The second one, the blue one, is transportation. As we can see how handy it is just there. Housing, 
social participation, civic participation and employment, communication and information, community support and healthy services. And you're gonna say, Nina, what's your problem? That's only seven. True. But the thing is the eighth is respect and social inclusion. And I would also add courtesy. And that's what makes everything move. <laughs> so, let's talk a little bit about how it actually works. Information goes round. The network of age-friendly cities allows a wealth of knowledge to be generated on how cities and communities can be friendly, and this is the important bit, for all ages. Leading architects and planners, according to their literature, all agree that today's design choices need to reflect the fact that our population is both aging and, and this is the, the real kicker, increasingly urbanized. So let's talk demographics. Demographics, after all, are our destiny. It's not that long ago when my parents' generation in London decided to move to a bungalow in Brighton, a seaside resort, or, and I'm gonna be very politically incorrect here, incorrect, or Costa Geriatrica, as it was known. They missed their infrastructure and moved back. For our generation, many of us have decided in general to stay put. By 2050, the global population over 60 years of age, and of course, these figures are before the pandemic, but I would imagine that they're probably going to stay pretty much the same, is expected to be double what it is today. Almost three quarters of the world's population will live in urban areas. So what are the implications and drivers for policy? Major drivers to policy shifts include the application of digital technologies to transform aspects of healthcare and lifestyle. And as mentioned, a general community de desire to age in place and economic pressures on public services to do more with less. And we're hearing that all from our councils, particularly now. I'm sure um, that Jeremy will have something to say about that. A number of case studies, both international and across Australia, help showcase the potential to design in or to design for health and well-being for all. For example, creative approaches to existing assets are being applied in New York, where the Market Ride program uses school buses during off-peak hours to transport older people to markets and cultural institutions. London, which is like Melbourne, has also not signed up to the age-friendly city movement, but, but does follow the principles, has got a great initiative called Care Centres on Wheels. They've taken the iconic double-decker bus and converted it into a mobile care centre, sponsored by Colgate, of all people, and special enterprise that trains baristas as well. This is such a brilliant idea. So there you go. Who do we design for? Well, it's more about how we design. Design with people rather than for people, the true meaning of co-design. One campaign close to home that has used the World Health Organization slogan and used it to make a strong local statement is Burundara. They took the slogan, and any of you in marketeers will like this, um, they took the slogan, 
put life in your years, more life, life in your years, and have made it their own across all their communication about healthy aging. I brought some of their materials for those interested to have a look at. And if you want any later, Helen's got some there. As for my experience with the Age City Friendly Cities concept, well, getting involved has been a fascinating journey, still learning things. The other day I was actually doing some research and found that Serbia is using age-friendly city concept to retain people because, of course, a lot of people have traditionally left and they're depopulating, so actually using it for that. So you always learn something new. Meeting new people, Catherine, for a start, which has led to a whole new group for me, and, of course, the lovely panel as well. So the framework in my, my experience does work for all levels and all ages. And now back to the professionals. Catherine. <laughs> Thanks, Nina. Um, I think that when you have a mind that is in, able to interrogate and analyse, that's what you get. Um, so that simplistic sloganeering doesn't work but when you apply that deep thoughtful process which is hopefully what we're bringing to you here is to disrupt and to challenge what is the aging narrative you get that sort of conversation as a starter so thanks Nina I think Nina and I confirm that as part of the uh, we, we are part of that young seniors cohort um, it's a cohort that as I said before, hasn't ex been recognised. It's not that we want to be anything special, but when you put from 60 plus as a tick box on any survey, you're talking today with centenarians becoming more common of a 40-year period. Imagine if you aggregated 20 to 60 or 0 to 40. It's just as senseless and it's not that you want to say that the needs of young seniors are different, it's just that they're not the same as those who are in their final period of requiring more support. And how can we help each other to actually have those conversations? But we acknowledge that our bodies have aged and that our needs are changing, as they ever will. We're not unique in acknowledging these changes as senescence as part of living, although its rate and impact is definitely unique for every individual. For today's discussion, rather than telling individual stories that focus on chronology as the only organising principle for age-friendly design, we're taking a much more humanist approach, considering our needs in common across all ages for urban spaces. Today, we're predominantly thinking of the collective space, including footpaths, rather than specific buildings, although we acknowledge that this could have been, would have been, a very rich topic for discussion. We also note that under M Pavilion's theme of design as a human right, there's been lots of discussions led by architects and urban planners, many looking at specific groups' needs, many recorded, that complement this one today. And we recommend them all to you. Check out the M Pavilion's website if you're interested. Today, our speakers will bring some alternative professional 
and lived experiences to the discussion. So in asking this group of people who I'll introduce very shortly, I also asked them to consider a couple of things. In our urban environment, in thinking about what you want to do, can you do it? Can you access and participate in those things? Will you meet and or mix with others? Will you feel welcome? So again, pop those in the back of your mind because that's what's guiding the conversation today. Our guests will explore today's theme through a humanist lens, as I said before. So let me introduce them to you briefly. We've met Nina. Ryan, obviously using wheels as part of getting around the city, but offering so much more, he'll, he'll tell you, including some fabulous work around accessible travel destinations. Beth, next in line, is a health advocate, including as the past Victorian Health Services Commissioner, and here today in her role as patron of the Continents Foundation of Australia. Welcome. And then there's Anne, Anne Fairhall, a good friend of mine, and a very good chum in terms of stepping up from the audience into this role today. Anne's been a city resident for over 30 years, a lot longer than my eight. Anne is a strong advocate for research into ageing through the NARI, which is the National Ageing Research Institute housed at the University of Melbourne, and the needs of people with dementia through Dementia Australia. Jeremy. Jeremy is a really exciting man in that he brings an instigation of a program inside the city of Yarra called Streets Alive Yarra. This is a community group that he's founded, which is bringing together people to promote livability for all citizens across inner city Yarra. And then in absentia, because she's on the program, but she's not here in person, is Tanya Davidge. Most of us, or many of us know Tanya, She's an architect by training with a public profile gained from leading the Citizens for Melbourne campaign that successfully opposed the Apple store at Fed Square. Amazing work on behalf of us all. Hopefully out of isolation tomorrow evening, yes, COVID struck her family. Um, Tanya is hosting a series of events here at M Pamillion starting this week. And they're looking at the needs of a sometimes forgotten community group of members the potentially and emerging increasing in numbers homeless women in older age. She's also provided me with a few words which I'll share with you as we go through. So in, in addition to these wonderful thoughts and diverse views, I know that within the audience, if time allows and the conversation stalls, I'm not sure about that one, um, there's all of you and your rich individual experiences we can draw on. Okay, so let's start by welcoming Ryan. Ryan, speaking for yourself firstly, 
but also from the perspective of those of us who use wheels or aids beyond wheelchairs to get around the city. And remember, that can be any of us at any moment in time when you fall over at rugby or uh, have a few too many to drink, etc., and find yourself with a temporary uh, moon boot. Um, can you kick us off? What do you see as the needs in common that we need to consider today? Sure, uh, happy to. Um, my name is Ryan Smith. I'm the founder of the Access Agency. We consult on accessible tourism. Um, I'm not an academic. I'm not a Paralympian or particularly special at sport or uh, overly um, academic, let's say. Um, I am a marketer and a graphic designer. I've spent 25 years as a creative director. And uh, I'm in the final throes of becoming a qualified access consultant, so I'm very excited about that. Um, Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I just really quickly want to reflect on the disabled voices that um, have uh, preceded me. Um, we stand on the shoulders of giants, obviously, and I think it's really important to recognise uh, the work that's done by, um, um, historically, by all of the people and the voices to get us where we are in terms of um, everything and the privilege that we, that we have. Speaking of privilege, um, I just think it's really important to just talk about the fact that we're having these conversations at all. I think it's really lucky and very... Um, um, yeah, very, very interesting and, and very uh, privileged is the right word, I suppose, that we are able to have these conversations. Um, I want to start off by uh, illuminating you or at least giving you a bit of a confession. And, you know, I, I told Catherine yesterday, I, she's still talking to me, I did a bad thing, but, you know, I, I feel like I know you guys now, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you. Um, for those who can't see, this is a, a red flyer. It's got um, the logo of Fines Victoria on it <clears throat> and it says, it's illegal to park here unless you have a valid disabled parking permit. Um, so, yes. Um, what I will say about this is, I didn't get this on my car. I actually carry these around with me. I made them up <laughs> and I put them, I put them underneath people's windscreen wipers when they park when they're not supposed to, because they do. Um, now, if you've ever seen one of these before, see me after class, because we, we've got a conversation to have, but um, the fact that I have these and I made these is a bit of an annoyance to me, and, and they came about as an annoyance, and I, I don't want to have to do them. It doesn't bring me any joy to distribute these. Um, and it brings me less joy to think about the fact that people think that my access doesn't matter <clears throat> and my rights don't matter. Now, I'm an optimist and I, I can see things improving and I can see things getting better. Um, I, there's certainly a, a, a big uh, push around awareness and you can see it, um, or hopefully you can see it around you every day and it's certainly gotten better and better. And honestly, I haven't used this in like an hour at least. So, <laughs> you know, we, we, we are getting there. Um, for me, I feel like there's, there's three really important parts to kind of the access equation that, that spans age, goes right, right across age. And um, studying to become an access consultant gives you a very good insight into the fact that, you know, we do have minimum requirements when it comes to the built environment. There are standards that fall out of the Disability Discrimination Act. They're not perfect, a lot of work to be done in those, but they are a great sort of platform. They are minimum um, 
And you can see um, from those who I talk to within uh, Victoria and in uh, council and in government that there are some really good developments happening in regards to universal access or so universal design, which goes further than the minimum access standards. And we are really beginning to see that diversity and that richness of our communities integrated and really thought about when it comes to the built environment. So there's a lot to be optimistic about and I'm an optimist. Um, now, when it comes to kind of shared needs, I was thinking about this and being in a wheelchair, as you can probably imagine, it gives you a bit of a preview, <laughs> if you like. It kind of, you can see what um, losing mobility is, is like and you can have a, a, a bit of a taste of the experiences in some ways that um, ageing brings. So it allows you to look forward, but it actually allows you to look backwards and kind of sideways as well. Um, I'm thinking about my niece who's nine years old. We share the same height, more or less. Um, we have the same sort of reach range. Uh, when I have an arthritic flare-up, we have the same sort of grip strength. And so those similarities I think are really important, at least to, to illustrate the fact that when you design for one cohort, you may as well, or you may inadvertently be designing for another one. Um, and, and in some ways, that's, uh, that's what's considered the curb cut effect, which is a, a positive byproduct of good access. Um, curbs, curb cuts is, is a very um, uh, American phrase, but if you imagine uh, the, the area between a footpath and the road, the curb cuts are those dips where you can move across uh, step free. And when they were introduced, uh, predominantly for people with wheelchairs, there was a, a whole fathom or a whole sphere of, of benefits that came to other people in society, people um, who were pushing prams, guys and girls doing um, deliveries with delivery trolleys and, of course, you know, less accidents, less uh, hazards and, and trips and, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole swathe of positive benefits that come when you bring good access into play. Um, so that's really important. The second part, I think, of the three parts is information. Uh, if you don't know, you don't go. And I think this is true for everybody. Um, I certainly spend a lot of time planning when I go far and wide. Um, when I went to uh, Egypt, there was an awful lot of, you know, planning that went into that. Um, because, put simply, you know, if, if, there's, if there's terrible access or not great access or I don't want to talk about it, but ramps and toilets and parking, you know, if, they, if they're not there then it makes my life a lot more difficult and I need to work around that infrastructure. So having that information available is absolutely crucial. Um, we are seeing more and more of that. You know, um, there, there is a prevalence of accessibility information within councils, which I think, you know, is benefits um, a lot of, if not everyone um, in the community. And certainly there are kind of shared needs that are met with provision of that information. Um, I think it's really important too that, that language doesn't get in the way, like language is part of the information. And I would just love to be able to get past those conversations where it's like, a, you know, do we call you a person with a disability or a disabled person or do you have other abilities? It's like, you know, let's get past that and let's start talking about the things that matter because that sort of language really kind of gets in the way. And providing it's not offensive, let's just get it done and, and, and get on to the bigger conversations. The third part, I suppose, around access that I feel is, is absolutely crucial and kind of one of the pillars, I suppose, is, is awareness. Um, in some cases, to, to borrow a metaphor, this is the software to the hardware, if you like. This is the, the mentality, the approach. 
Um, and the, the empathy and the compassion that, that comes with um, feeling welcomed at a place. And it's really important. And again, you know, we, we, are, we are talking about language. Let's get past that. Um, I don't know that empathy can be taught. And I don't think, you know, access is one of those things. You, you only, it's like air, you know, you only see it when you need it. Um, and when you need it, or when you don't have it, rather, it can make life pretty uncomfortable. Um, so I think good customer service, good community, good sense of community is really important. And this is one of the things you really notice with travel. When I was travelled to Berlin, I was in uh, at a, a skateboard demo of all of all things, and sort of peering over and looking. And, and a guy said to me, "Oh, do you want me to? You know, can I help you get you know up to this platform or whatnot?" And we started a conversation, and. For the next four hours, he and his friends gave me a, basically a guided tour of Berlin. It was tremendous. They pushed me up ramps. They carried me up steps. And these were complete strangers. And so that's, that is the, 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 the essence of um, inclusion, I believe. And that's really important. And I feel that particularly in tourism, but it's true everywhere, I think, people want to share their place. They want to share the connection that they have with a sense of place. And they're very proud. We, we become very proud of the places that we occupy um, and I really believe that that's, that's kind of growing and that, that uh, is, is crucial. It's one of the, the, the crucial parts to the, the access equation, if you like. Um, just finally, um, the, we are making headway. And again, I am an optimist. The, the travel sector alone, or we saw a couple of weeks ago an announcement um, that one of the pillars that Tourism Australia is recommending to operators to consider is accessible tourism alongside adventure tourism and, and ecotourism uh, eco and, and agritourism and some other ones. Now, that's the first time that's ever been considered at that stage at a federal level. So that's really exciting for me. And I think it's reflective of what's going on uh, in, in the broader community. Now, they, they didn't quite get it right. Um, you know, I don't go on an accessible holiday. I just go on holiday, you know. I make it accessible and, and I hope that it's accessible and I make plans so that I can get around and do those things. So. I am optimistic. Um, I do know where you can get a couple of these if you want them. Um, yeah, free of charge, but um, happy to be here and happy to see uh, the developments really moving forward in this space and really excited to be part of the panel. Well, the, the, the humorist in the group, that's great. But I think the other message that I take away from that that is relevant to um, any consideration of individualism or difference is the need to potentially think that language is actually directed with good intention until it's proven to be poor intention because we spend a lot of time, there's a lot of campaigns, Age UK is an example where photographs and language and we will never get it right. You will always have one group that wants to be identified as an older person, a senior's fine for me and then you'll get someone else who says, no, I'm not old. And that, that again is in any of these segmentations, people will have different views. So thank you, Ryan. I think that's a really strong point as well as all of the humour that you brought to that. So Beth, from your perspective, both as an advocate and as patron of Continents Foundation Australia, and as a young senior yourself, if I can use that term, what are some of the needs in common you think we should be thinking about in age-friendly design? Okay, I'll just test this. Can you hear me all right? 
Okay. Um, do you mind if I start with a story and work my way up to an answer to your question? <laughs> so, um, I'm 71 now, but just after I retired from work, or started failing at retirement, I should say, I was pushing an old dog in a dog pram down Argo Street near where I live. Um, and to my mortification, the dog was wearing a tea cosy on his head. And that's because he suddenly sprouted this big wart and it used to really frighten children. So someone gave me this tea cosy and said, for heaven's sake, Beth, put that on him. It was quite good because his little ears could come out each side. So, so there's your past health services commissioner wheeling an aged dog um, down Argo Street when a car suddenly screeched to a halt beside me and a woman jumped out saying, oh, I'll ask this nice lady, I'll ask this nice lady. And I looked in astonishment and she said, do you know where there's a toilet? And I said, oh, well, there's one at the market, but that's about a 10-minute walk. And there's one at the hospital. No, 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 it's got to be right away. It's got to be nearby, she said. I said, look, just come around to my place. I just live round the corner. Oh, she said, you're so kind. And she's trotting along beside me and the dog in the buddy pram with the tea cosy on his head. And... Uh, and she's saying, you're so kind. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. I said, look, don't think anything of it. I am the patron for the Continence Foundation of Australia. <laughs> and despite her incredible need, she stopped in her tracks. And she said, you're not. <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> she said, of all the people in the world that I could have stopped to ask for a toilet. But she said she came from um, Hillsville. And had she been at home, she could have just gone behind a bush. But, you know, in South Yarra, you don't drop your decks and have a pee in the middle of the street, unless you want to get arrested, of course. So it's incredible that something as basic as a need like that is so often just not catered for. And I do belong to the Continence Foundation family, and it's a great family. We really support each other. We talk about uncomfortable things like pee and poo and because it's actually a common factor to all of us um, and sometimes gets more um, urgent with age, although I guess we sort of end up where we begin, but we won't get into that for the moment. Um, my, my uncle, somebody mentioned that they weren't surprised by ageing. Well, my mother died at 96, carrying a great big bag of potting mix up the steps to her house, and her brother, John, well into his 90s now, he drove his car from North Queensland to my place here in Paran um, just for a visit um, with his dog. Didn't tell his family because he knew they wouldn't let him come. Uh, and he was, he'd come back from the market and he was standing outside my house when the urge to write a poem came upon him. Uncle John often has urges to write poems, usually about ladders or sheds. But he's there writing his poem and this man came running, running, running up and he said, Oh, mate, you're not going to book me, are you? John said, no, I was writing a poem. <laughs> John's actually recently um, written a chapter for a book which is about men's sheds. Now, what a fabulous um, way they are of bringing people together because at a men's shed, you can talk about things that you might not talk about elsewhere and blokes will listen to blokes. Uncle John's family have said, please, Dad, give up your licence and... Because he's a stubborn man, he won't do that. But at the shed, Kevin walks in and says, hey, John, there's a few bumps in your car, mate. Do you 
reckon you might think about not driving anymore. And he listened to them and um, he did stop driving, thank goodness. Um, and I'll just go on. Um, soon, I think in a fortnight, is it, um, that we're going to have the, the launch of the Great Dunny Hunt 2022. And this year it's about dunnies and disability. So you'll be very pleased to hear that, yeah. Um, dunnies can be very hard to find and not so many years back, councils seemed to have got some kind of um, risk aversion bug and they were closing down toilets all over the place because of insurance reasons. Um, and not only toilets, I remember I was involved in a campaign to save the Mary Kehoe Hall. Anyone know the Mary Kehoe Hall? Yeah. Uh, Mary Kehoe Hall is in South Melbourne. It's where U3A and uh, elderly citizens meet. At one stage, one council decided they were going to flog it off for some money and build some flats there. And, and the seniors protested loudly and strongly. And they said, we well, can go to a, another hall somewhere else, you know. But they used to walk to their lovely hall, which is, and that's really good for people's health and mobility and community as well. So um, we fought like mad and we won that battle. But you do have, it's a continuing fight to keep our precious community spaces because they're easy, easily gobbled up by greedy people. Um, friendly design, what are we designing for? 38% of people living with a disability had or were experiencing continence issues. It's a very wide issue. Um, as I say, I remember a dear friend of mine, Evie Wallace, when she, she was coming up to about 100 and she was living in a nursing home and she rang me up when I was the commissioner because she often rang me up to tell me how, how I should do my job and I always found Evie's suggestions really interesting and she said, I want you to write an article in The Age about nylon continence pads and I said, oh, oh I can't write about nylon continence pads in the air. But when I thought about it, I thought, yes, I can. This is a human rights issue, if there ever was one. She said, I hate the things. They're hot, they give me a rash, they're uncomfortable. So I wrote, based on human rights, an article for The Age, which they were kind enough to publish on, on pads. And Evie was famous in her nursing home for the next fortnight. And some very kind manufacturer donated a great big box of cotton continence pads for Evie. So she called me up and she said, I am over the moon. This is the best birthday present I could ever have had. So she was thrilled. Um, although I've done a lot of work in women's health, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about men's issues today because a lot of us don't think too much about men having continence issues, which of course they do. And um, particularly it's a hazard of, um, um, thank you. <laughs> I was being careful not to say prostrate. <laughs> Following prostate cancer surgery. Um, so we've got a fantastic campaign going called Bins for Blokes. And this is where members of the public can nominate a toilet where they would like to see a, a disposal bin for men so that they can go out feeling that, you know, they're not going to get stuck and they can actually change very carefully. So watch out for that. There's a lot of councils taking up that challenge now. 
I've had the pleasure over the years of doing some great talks to community groups. Anyone familiar with Probus? Mm -hmm. I was down at Frankston Probus and I said to the guy there, well, what does Probus actually stand for? He said, oh, it means professional retired old buggers useless for sex. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but his mate said, no, it doesn't. It means prostate removed other bits under suspicion. But I, I loved going to the Probus clubs because... You're all right there, Kath? <laughs> Probus clubs are, are, is a fantastic place where people meet, they provide support to each other. If someone doesn't turn up for a meeting, someone makes sure they go around and see if they're um, at home and they meet in all kinds of public spaces. Um, so that's, that's a great way of using design and space to keep people in contact with each other, having a hell of a lot of fun. And I actually went once with my um, son, no, what, what, my niece's husband, anyway. And he sat at the back of the hall while we talked and they were a really interactive, fantastic audience on this particular day. And he said, I didn't know old people had so much fun. He said, his parents just sat there saying, I don't like Australia. <laughs> And these people were dancing, laughing, singing, um, just having a fantastic time in public spaces, um, not necessarily designed for them, but, but using them um, really well. Is that all I wanted to say? Um, make sure that, um, that, that you um, have a look at our toilet map if you're interested in this subject and if you aren't, there's something wrong with you. There's over 20,000 toilets that are on the map now. Did I get that right? I did, thank you. Um, and that can be really, it's very inhibiting if you think, I don't want to go out because I might be caught short. But if you know where to go, um, then um, that makes you much more confident using public spaces. So thank you all. It's been a great joy being in the Continents Foundation family. I met a fantastic man called Greg Ryan. Um, Greg wrote a book called A Secret Life. Greg, for all his life, has had a condition called AI, IA, imperforate anus. And he, as a little boy, he had to, um, the only place he ever actually felt safe in was a toilet because he never knew when he was going to have an accident or not. If he played football, he'd make sure he put some mud on the back of his little shorts so that he wouldn't get embarrassed if he had an accident. And I'll say nothing more about cricket whites. You can imagine how that would be. But it wasn't for years and years until he found his own community online that Greg actually came out and wrote his book, A Secret Life, which I had the pleasure of interviewing him as John Fain's co-host on the Conversation Hour. And he brought in his uncle, Uncle Bert. Uncle Bert Newton. So I got to work with Bert Newton, who was... Incredibly professional, very, very funny and courteous and lovely in every way. As soon as Bert opened his mouth, whoever was working the switchboard or those keyboard things they have in studios, they would all just stop and listen. And our other guest that day, shut up, Bert. Our, our other guest that day was um, a man from England who ran a restaurant called the... Oh, I can't remember, it doesn't matter. But... Um, he built his restaurant on the money that his brother made. I've never had to compete with Corollas before. 
He built his restaurant on money that he got from his brother, who was a recording artist and who had recorded Fat Boy Slim, who sold something like 30 million records. Forgive my data, I haven't counted, I'm just making that up. But Bert, in the studio, looked over and he said, how many records was that, did you say, you sold? 30 million. My wife, Patty, and I, we made a record together once. I believe it sold 17 copies. And I think it's still available at the Camberwell Market. So I'll finish up um, saluting one of our recently departed heroes, Bert Newton. Thank you, everyone. One of the things that I think we're seeing is uh, raconteurs here up front. Um, I've given up time timing. <laughs> um, it's it's in a position where I think we've got so much laughter, and it's a wonderful expression of just bringing people together. Yeah, sure, a few of us have had a 60th birthday, but it really doesn't matter. These life experiences just seem to get longer and longer and broader and broader. And let's see what Anne comes up with. So, Anne, first of all, thanks for stepping up. Anne, Anne was going to be in the audience. Anne and I met um, after a conference and walked home together and have been good friends ever since. Um, as I said before, she's had about 30 years or so of actually living in the city, and she can tell you a little bit about that. Initially, as one half of a busy professional group, uh, a bit like Beth, they, these people just amaze me, then navigating through the stages of living with and then caring for her partner, Jeff, with dementia. And now, as an older resident who's made the conscious choice to remain a city resident, and in fact, one of the things she said to me when I first met her was that she just moved apartments to South Bank from Queen's Road, uh, Queen Street in the city, and that that was a good move because that'd do her for the next 20 years and then she'd think about it again. <laughs> Over to you. Well, I'll just check. Yes, you can hear me. Yeah. Um, yes, what is, you know, ageing, um, it's been touched on now <laughs> a couple of times. Um, but I've got a couple of uh, stories as well. Um, my father at age seven, uh, 87, I should say, um, after my mother died, he said um, he thinks he'll go on a holiday. And uh, he went on a holiday to New Zealand. And he actually thought this was great fun. He was 87 and he booked in to go uh, on one of those rubber um, ducky things down the Shotover River. And um, all these young people on this boat says, we've got this old bloke who who's laughing and carrying on. They actually thought it was really weird that he wanted to do this as an older person. And then a little bit later, he actually wanted, uh, this is to do with age definitely design now, um, he wanted to go on another holiday. And so he, he said, I'd better take someone with me. So Jack was going to go with him. And Jack and my father were both proberians. So they were both from probers. And uh, so am I, actually. Um, but anyway, they went on this holiday and Dad said, well, uh, and, and I have a nursing background, right, that was my first career. Um, my sister and I said, well, who's going to dress your leg if you're going on this bus trip from Adelaide up through the centre and into these remote parts of WA? Who's going to dress this ulcer on your leg? And he said, oh, we won't worry about it. And we thought perhaps we would. So we, we booked him into um, Halls Creek or somewhere into the hospital. Um, when he came back, 
he came back with a um, he came back with a uh, a patch on his face, and we said, uh, "Oh, what happened?" And he said, uh, "Oh well, um, I, I I hit my face, head," and he said, "And I won a trip to Hong Kong," and. We said, oh, really? Uh, but it turns out he told us um, in great detail that he had a scratchy and he scratched it on the plane and he said to the host, uh, whatever, um, what does it mean if I've got a red thing on my thing? And they said, you've won a trip to Hong Kong. So he hopped off uh, to pick him up at the airport with his patch on thing, and the first thing he wanted to say is, I've just won a trip to Hong Kong. So we wondered whether he really was a bit confused. But anyway, he had. And then a couple of weeks later, he died. And so I rang uh, to say, would it be possible to actually, uh, for my sister and I, to go um, in his place? Oh, we've never really had this done. So I said, well, look, one of us will pay, one of us won't. And so we go to Hong Kong as sisters together, and we say... Thanks, Dad. <laughs> he lived to the end. Now, uh, I think when it comes to ageing, I'm, and we're revealing ages, I'm 78 and going on to my 79th, and, um, uh, and, and I, I am planning to go for quite a while longer. I've got a few long livers in my uh, family. Um, so, really, ageing is a weird thing. If it's, if it's for driving, as was mentioned before, um, a great uncle of mine died at 103, just dropped dead in the queue park taking his um, usual walk. Um, but when he was 101, he said, uh, yes, I'm still driving. He said, I don't have any trouble. I just steer straight ahead and everyone keeps out of my way. <laughs> now, I don't think that is a good idea, actually. <laughs> But on driving, so um, back to the point, um, I, I have been living, or Jeff and I were living in, uh, came into the city from uh, Eltham, we, we were living out at Eltham, uh, and our kids had both grown up, we were both in corporate jobs at the time, and it was really silly, we were spending hours on the road travelling, um, and it wasn't a good idea, we felt, so we decided back in the early 90s, to live, move into the city. Now, in thinking about this, I actually was thinking, I've actually lived in the city, except for a little gap, for 60-something years because I first lived in the city in Lonsdale Street, just next to Wesley Church, uh, where they've just built a new apartment building now uh, in the old Princess Mary Club. And... Um, the city in, in 1961, when I moved in, was actually very different. We walked everywhere. There were trains, uh, trams, I should say. There were very uneven footpaths. It wasn't really built for uh, ageing. I wasn't aged at that stage. But um, when I think about it, it was very different. Um, leave that aside, we, life went, moved on. And then we, we came back to live in the city. We decided... We, we were up in Queensland and we thought we'll ha uh, uh, apartment living would be quite good. So apartment living we tested out on the Gold Coast for short periods of time but had a bit of a time to think about it and we decided for us it would be uh, the best of both worlds if we could make it um, to, to have a, an apartment in the city, just a very small one, and then to have a country place. 
that led us to think about what we would do. We would have been in our 50s, I guess, 40s and 50s but age at that stage. That led us to think a little bit about what we would do later. Would we want to live in the country or would we want to live in the city? And uh, we loved being in the country, but when it came to whether we would live in older age in the country, we decided it was not for us. Definitely wasn't for me, but it wasn't for either of us really long term. It relied on having to um, be able to drive, and if we weren't able to drive, what would we do? Uh, public transport wasn't available to us. Medical services weren't available to us. There was a good sense of community in countries, uh, country towns and areas. But uh, I think now, just linking with what um, um, Catherine said before, why have I chosen to stay living in the city. Now, sadly, my husband has, he had an early, a younger onset dementia and he's in the very late stages of uh, dementia now in aged care. But I've had lots of reasons to think about design for ageing in aged care with dementia. It's not done very well, let me tell you. It's terrible. Um, and uh, a lot of aged care facilities think that ageing is about when you think you might retire and have a fun life, you know, for a while and don't look at the comorbidities and the things you have to live with and, and whether you've got medical services nearby, whether you've got um, uh, supports nearby. And um, it is true that I've just decided a, a few years ago, three or four years ago, uh, to not live in, well, we sold our country place, that, that was a long time ago, uh, and not to have a big place in the city, which we did have, uh, and I was rattling around in it on my own. So I thought, what do I do? I want to remain independent for a very long time, as long as I can, but what does that mean? So I've actually downsized from two residences and old green sheds and garages <laughs> to cull, 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 um, then back in a three-bedroom apartment uh, from which I used to run a business and I've cull, culled and left that and uh, and now I'm in a one-bedroom apartment and my um, son and family think uh, that that's really a bit extreme. But do you know, it is a bit extreme, but uh, they didn't understand why I was doing it, but they do now. And I say, I have the best of both worlds. I am, feel supported. I feel I'm close to everything. I feel I'm close to medical services. Right next door, I've got a little park area, not very big, but a park area. I can go and sit on the park. I'm next to the Boyd Centre down in South Bank now. Um, and uh, I looked for a place that had 24-hour concierge because in my analysis I decided maybe I would go and live in a hotel because they would support me with everything I needed. Someone, when I couldn't open something, I could go to concierge. So last night I had to get a bottle of wine opened by concierge uh, and uh, it was very nice too. And, um, uh, and uh, sometimes I just need a little bit of support. So... Uh, I decided probably it wasn't valid to go and live in a hotel. So what I've done is tried to look at what was next best. So one room, uh, well, one bedroom. I have a small apartment, very small. It's about a quarter of the size of the place that I was in before. Actually, it's less than a quarter of the size as my pre than my previous apartment. Um, I have had to go on culling 
But I've also started to uh, and love it. I wanted to have um, the uh, sort of uh, I want to be able to just close up and go off and do what I needed to do, um, visit my husband, um, and then do all my other activities. I've got a lot of interests, as uh, Catherine said. I'm very involved with NARI, National Aging Research Institute, and um, I've been on a pro uh, they've been developing guidelines for continence management in residential aged care, and I've been, as I'm often, a, a consumer representative on those committees, and so I, 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 it's actually very important. Um, but I'm also, the lived I've got the lived experience of what it was like to try and manage at home, and what it's been like to try and get things manageable in residential aged care, even though the staff are meant to do it, it turns out that we, they really need strong advocates. So, just so I don't keep waffling on and time-wise, and you've got a little bit of time, Jeremy, um, I was looking at things. I, uh, the things that interested me uh, for this latter stage of my life, through till my late 90s, hopefully, maybe, um, is um, aesthetics, convenience. I wanted to be able to see out of my bedroom window. So if I was incapacitated at home in bed because I wasn't well, I could just look out at the city. So that meant I didn't want to live low down. I needed to live up high. So I'm at level 39 and I decided 30 and above was okay. However, um, uh, it is a bit of a problem if there's a fire evacuation. So I've actually registered with the, uh, the uh, local fire brigade to say that I will not be coming down the stairs um, and they have to actually come and get me. So uh, hopefully they will. <laughs> um, public transport um, is right next door. Um, I want to have sunshine. So I like morning light. So I was looking for morning light, but it could be afternoon light. I needed to be able to get to do my shopping easily. So at the moment, I'm still driving. Um, I've, uh, if I can't, if my car collapses, uh, which one day I won't want to drive a car because I will actually think we should have share cars. But if I can't manage that, um, I, I'm looking for someone to design a little car uh, like, uh, is it Mercedes had those little mini, mini cars. Smart anyway, cars. I saw one the other day and I thought, now that could be my next car um, if I'm still car. But maybe I just Uber it. Uh, they're pretty good too. Safety, falls prevention and flexibility and fun. Now, Probus, the three, I'm a Proberian too. So our, our motto is have fun, have uh, meet and friendship and fellowship. And it is great. Um, there's a new... Probus Club called Bear Brass Probus Melbourne and I've, uh, because I'm a little overloaded with a lot of projects at the moment, I've just stepped down as vice president but actually <laughs> the others are um, taking over from there. So they were my main things that I wanted to say and also um, just very briefly, um, I think product design, th these are things you've already mentioned, but product design is really important. Community support is really important. A lot of work's been done on some of these things. Um, social connection, vital, and um, and uh, and <laughs> the Probus Clubs, where they're younger members, and this particular club is all younger members. You can join any time from 55 onwards. Um, and uh, so on. 
living in smaller housing and so on makes a lot of sense environmentally in the future. My power bills are much less, my water's less, everything's less, my body corporate fees are less and, um, and it's, I've got a great walkability. So I walk here today and I walk lots of places uh, unless I, my arthritis gets in the way. So <laughs> um, thanks, Catherine. I think I'll stop there. I probably haven't covered everything you wanted, but there you go. <laughs> the joy of being a curator or a host when um, we have raconteurs extreme. Um, time has slipped away, but we won't let that stop us. I'll just rejig as I go. But um, it's okay. No, no, you, you have every right there, Jeremy, to have your time as well. I'm just wondering what stories you can tell. Um, the <laughs> Jeremy, as I said before, is the initiator of the campaign Streets Alive Yarra. And one of the reasons that I was keen for um, Jeremy to bookend the conversation today and maybe we can pull it back towards the concept of needs in common is that a lot of what you've heard, although the humour has been associated with the age relevance it's actually extremely the same. I, I reckon if you've got the twins, 12-year-olds uh, sitting here and having a conversation about what they want, they want to be with their friends. They want to skateboard, which is a little bit different than um, maybe what uh, Beth was talking about, but maybe not. You know, it, but it's about activities people want to do, and I think that's what you've been hearing here, is that people want to be with people that they enjoy being with, they want to explore new things, they want to be able to get there. When they're there, they want to feel comfortable, whether that's safety, whether it's accessibility or whatever. So over to you, Jeremy. You've got the community gig. What are you going to tell us? So what great speakers. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name's Jeremy. I'm an engineer and I'm here to help. <laughs> uh, I live over in the city of Yarra, so the neighbouring municipality, and I wanted to talk about two things. Um, building a, a beautiful, livable and accessible city is good for people of all ages. And secondly, how can we make it happen? And I guess the story starts from when I was younger, like younger than 30, and I was living in my house in, in South Richmond and my grandmother from Tassie came up to visit and we went out to walk up to the, to the local tram stop and she tripped over a step, a small step in the footpath and fell down and grazed a hand and, you know, take it back and put some bandage and a betadine on him. And back then I was a young, you know, fit 30-year-old and thought this is just perfectly normal. People have got to look out for themselves. And then later I, a couple of years later, I moved to Germany and lived there for seven years. And as part of that, got to travel around to the Netherlands and Denmark and a lot of other and France and Italy, of course, uh, and you can see how cities are designed differently. And just like in Japan, students or kids in Germany can travel to school by themselves when they're like seven or eight years old. They can walk out the front door either by themselves or with a group of friends and get on a tram and take a short stop, and this is considered perfectly normal. And there weren't kids being squashed by cars. They were coming home safe. <laughs> and the footpaths were smooth and wide, the tram stops were level access, you could roll on and roll off, and then, uh, this, this is a bit of a revelation for me, but it didn't quite hit home, the differences until we had a child. So we, my wife and I actually had our child in Germany, and 
because we're in that sort of mid-30s age and actually all of our, a lot of our friends were having kids then. And you could see how everything worked so much better. So we had a, a big chunky German pram and we could roll it down the footpath to a park that was only 200 metres away. So every neighbourhood had a park. And again, the footpaths were lovely and wide. You could roll it on and off trams. You could take uh, the, the pram into the, all the shopping centres, the supermarkets, the, even the little cafes. And it was just wonderful. And then when we came back to Melbourne, even though Melbourne's pretty good, it's just not quite the same. We had a, a one and a half year old then in a, a bike trailer, so a little bit wider than a normal push bike, just trying to take a one kilometre to a childcare centre. And even that seemed a bit difficult. So as a confident 37 year old, I'm quite happy to ride on the streets even with cars whizzing by and I knew the child wasn't going to jump out of the trailer, so that wasn't the problem. But it was just not as comfortable. And then even the fact of where do you park an ordinary bike with a trailer to get a child out to childcare centre, you kind of have to take up a, a car parking bay, and that seemed to make other people grumpy, even though I was gone pretty quick. And then as my child got to primary school age, she started riding, which is great, and she wanted to ride to school, only two kilometres away. But the, the roads are, you know, kind of scary, so we had to navigate a little bit of a wiggly-wobbly way to avoid the, the worst streets. And so the, the thought was there, well, how can we make this a bit better? And so I started off in the normal way. I wrote a few letters, met with my local member of parliament, wrote to councillors, and really nothing changed. You're one person. And so speaking with a councillor, the response was, you have to show us that there's broad community support for what you want and where can the money come from. And so the website was, was born as a record and as an answer to that challenge. So if anyone's got a smartphone, then you can look up that and hopefully it should come up as one of the first two hits. You know, give it a go. See, tell us if we get a good response. Um, and the, that leads on to... It, the website sort of got two aspects. One is introducing people who are beginners to what makes a good city, not just beautiful and livable, but also accessible. So things like how wide should a footpath be? Should the trees be placed or planted on the footpath or maybe off to the side? How wide does a bike path need to be? How do you design a, a crossing so that it's, it's safe and it actually encourages drivers to slow down just by how it looks and how it feels to the driver. So instead of using a sign and hopefully that people won't sl will slow down. And so there's a whole bunch of information on there. And then the second half of it touches on point number two, how do we make this happen? How do we show that there's actually a lot of people out there with similar ideas who actually agree and, and we're not really um, fighting against the opposition here. We're just trying to show that the people who control the budgets that there is votes in this and you will make a lot of people happier. And so the trick there is to, we, we come up with this idea of having champions. We invite ordinary mums and dads, people in the community of any age, to say, I've got an idea of how to make my street a bit better. It could be someone who says, there's a, a crack or a bump in the footpath, you just need to plane it flat, or I'd like another tree, or I'd like a pedestrian crossing, or a bike lane, and we can make a page on the website for them and put them at the bottom of the website of that page as, as the champion. And then we, we build up over time a long list. 
and of course we've got some testimonials for some professionals, some academics. But then when th this sort of had as a catalytic effect, people come across the website either on social media or face-to-face -face networking and they can scan it through and realise they're not alone. There is somebody maybe just around the corner from them who also wanted that crossing that their kid also gets scared at when they try to go to school. Or there's a whole bunch of people who actually agreed that more trees in their streets would be good even if they lost three car parks. Or they're getting to parents of high school aged children, so my, my kid's now 13, riding two and a bit kilometres to the, to the local high school, and you can see a whole stream of kids in the mornings going down some of the streets, and you know, they're, they're tolerating the traffic, they're tolerating the danger, so, but it's really only a smaller percentage of the, of the kids who ride to school compared with, say, kids in the Netherlands. And we know that it's better for kids' mental and physical health if they can travel independently. So that sense of actuality, that they're in a little bit of control of their own lives, they don't depend upon their parents to drive them to school and to sport in their friend's house. They can actually decide to, to meet up, go to the park, go to the cinema, go to ballet class by themselves, heaven forbid. And that has follow-on effects. You know, so I, I could say that this is a, a selfish exercise, what I'm doing, because I would like to avoid the need to act as the chauffeur. <laughs> And, but I've got plenty of friends who drive their kids around to all sorts of things and I'm, maybe I'm going out of a limb here, but I reckon they would like it if their kids could get around independently too. So that's the basic idea is to, is to, is to build up something that's positive and encouraging and friendly as opposed to anger and outrage that you read in the Herald Sun and to say, join in. This group is really only for one little municipality, the city of Yarra, it's not... Uh, on the sides of Victoria Walks or Bicycle Network. It's, it's something much smaller and much local. And we're finding that we get really good traction. So the councillors, of course, is the local government. They're, they're much closer to their constituents than state or federal parliamentarians. They can talk to a lot of people and see the commonalities. So they talk to mums with prams. They talk to primary school aged kids at openings, they go to choir events and ask people, well, how did you get here? People talk about parking issues or they want all their little ideas and so they can actually introduce those people to us, say, have a look at our website, you know, check out this and it grows over time. And we're just starting to get the, the first few inklings of, of neighbouring municipalities. So there could be a, in future, a Streets Alive Borondara or a Streets Alive Darabin or a Streets Alive Morland. It's, it's, it's a, not a, a walking advocacy it's not cycling advocacy, it's not um, a uh, water-sensitive urban design advocacy, people who want more trees, it's sort of mixing that all together about how we can live a better life, how we can change the design of our cities. And we find that a lot of the supporters, the initial supporters we got, were people who had been to Europe or overseas, lived in Japan or, or Korea or, or Poland or the Czech Republic and that, those sort of traditional architecture cities where you could actually walk across the village. You could actually walk, um, or even now that in the Netherlands, for example, there's, there's a couple of hours with, with Dutch sounding names, if you look at the supporters page, and they've got a complete metropolis, so not just Greater Melbourne, but three or four cities in the Randstad area around Amsterdam. So if you look geographically, it's, it's bigger than Greater Melbourne, but they can get from anywhere to anywhere in just about 
just over half an hour because they can ride their push bike to a local train station, take two trains, and then take the, the public share bikes, which are provided by the train company, and swiping it with their Mikey and get on and ride to their destination. And all that leads to incredible flexibility. You can have families that live in one location but commute to two different jobs you know, over distances like, like either to, to, to Dandenong or to Eltham. And then older people in the Netherlands can, can age for longer in their own homes. So they have that confidence that they can leave their property and, and walk perhaps with a, a, a movement aid or a, a cane and get to the local supermarket because they're, they're actually quite close and, and get home with a day's shopping. And so that ultimately gets back to the future I'm looking for for myself. So I reckon I'll stay here in the city of Yarra or, or inner Melbourne for a, a while. I'm only 48, but I would, I think, even though infrastructure design and planning is a, is a generational type timescale, 30 years, I think there's a lot, as an optimist, we can get done in 10 or 15 years. So that should be well before I get to my 70s, <laughs> that I should be, have the confidence to, to, to be able to continue that life gently there. And when I get out and try and explain it to other people, it starts to get complicated because as an engineer, I try to, I often default to the technical side of the discussion, you know, so let's talk about footpath widths and um, passing distances and how people deserve a, a, a slope on the, on the to, for drainage of only 2%, you know, because if it gets too steep, then you're going along in a, in a wheelchair and it starts to, to tip, right? Um, and the simplest way of talking about it is, well, there are people who use wheelchairs and they might be your friend and you might like to invite them around for a cup of tea. And how are they going to get to your house? So I've got a friend who uses a wheelchair up in Clifton Hill, but the streets around me are so narrow and the footpaths are so tight, they can't actually use their wheelchair to get to my house. So we typically go to them to visit. So it would be, in my opinion, a lot nicer if people could travel between any two properties irrespective of whether you choose to walk or roll on a wheelchair or scoot or ride your push bike or take public transport or drive and park. And that's the, that's the summary I give. Um, equity of access for everyone. And then you find if you look into the, the best practice design guides around the world and the images and renders that they offer, it actually looks quite nice. The lifestyle is actually quite nice. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be much of a downside. And so that's the... That's the hope. We can get there if we work together and, and show that the powers that be that there's enough people out there willing to, to cast their vote for the right area. Thanks, um, Jeremy. Beautifully brought back to the idea of needs in common, that really what each person has been talking about in their own voice is actually getting around, feeling welcome, uh, knowing what's there, not always being exactly what you need, but at least knowing what is there um, is also important. I'm just going to take a couple of minutes and we we probably won't have a lot of time for um, questions or comments, etc. But before um, I move to that just for a couple, I asked Tanya, who was coming along today, um, but as we know, COVID's hitting Melbourne pretty hard. 
And she uh, was, I asked her to offer some insights around equity and ethics issues, particularly because, as I said, I urge you to follow up on her next week um, talking about Making Home, which is about inclusion of a socially um, distant group that we don't think about, which is people who don't necessarily have a few dollars in their pocket or, um, you know, we need equity to be something that is not middle class. We need equity that is about gender and race and, and age and those sort of things. But we also need to think about economic access and freedom. Freedom in the city is a campaign I'd love to run. The idea of understanding what's free, what we can do, how we can be included. But anyway, here's Tanya's words. I'm an architect with an interest in equity and inclusion and I love cities. Cities bring together two things that are incredibly important to me the built environment and people. When we bring these two things together, we make place and participating in this creation of place is what fosters a sense of community. Common unity. This making of place and the development of community is predicated on participation because I firmly believe that together we make the city. And if we are to make the city together, we may need to make sure that we include all of the voices that live, work and play in our cities. A city I want to live in is a city that welcomes all of its citizens. As an architect, it is important to me that we create places and spaces that draw from the diversity of people's experiences and knowledge. And the process of incorporating this knowledge and continually updating and reflecting on it as a dynamic process is as important as the outcome. Incorporating lived experience and knowledge should not be a box-ticking exercise. Meaningful participation must be encouraged regardless of age, income and background. Meaningful participation not only offers people a say in the making and the shaping of our cities, it also offers them the agency to affect change. In this way, meaningful participation builds trust in the processes that make and shape the city. And in do, doing so, has the potential to strengthen civic and community bonds. These qualities are so key to making this a city we all want to live in. So you can see that Tanya and uh, Jeremy were my two bookends in terms of that concept of bringing it back out to the whole voice. We've had some lovely stories to reflect on about particular lived experiences and they're always important. But there are voices that are not always heard. There are same voices that are sometimes heard and we exclude. Um, so I think that while there were a number of questions that could be asked, I think the commonality that we see is that there's not one person here, and I'm sure amongst you, that would say that increasing this design equity is in fact increasing design access for all, whether it be generational, experience, health, whatever. I'm not gonna go into some of the other stats, etc., except to say that it's very interesting that this week in the um, state newspapers that the Australian Bureau of Statistics had their release of their figures. Um, and I think for the 2020 report, I think it was, I don't know, um, 
in 2021. And it says that more than three quarters of all Australians had long-term health condition, had a long-term health condition in 2021. That's 75% of people. So right here, right now, imagine what we don't know about each other. And that of those, almost half selected at least one chronic condition. Sobering thoughts. They go on to say that those figures are, mental health is 20% of those, but I think this is one that um, probably we might all be feeling at this point. Back problems, 16%. And arthritis, 12.5%. They're big figures. Really, really big figures. So the concept of designing better access, having streets that you can guarantee don't have cluttered bins on to walk down, that the slope of it is not so that you feel like you're on one side using only half of your core muscles. These things are, are for all of us. And so my challenge to all of us is that M Pavilion is a great start for this conversation. It's not the only place that it started. Public conversations are imperative, but the biggest importance that I want to stimulate is the conversation between each other. The conversation between your friends, your mate that wants to come around for a coffee and can't, the friend that you don't think can do something but you don't ask them if they can, the fact that you might be wearing the moon boot in a couple of weeks' time. This has got to be a conversation that we have at the micro and the macro level. So. I want to put whatever young seniors might become behind it and I want to hear all of you do the same so that Ryan doesn't need to put his little red stickers there. Um, and because we are really close to time, I'm afraid that um, there isn't really time for a lot of comments. If anyone's got a burning comment they want to make, that would be great. But I, before I do that, I'm just going to thank everybody up here and all of you for a, a great a lot of laughs, didn't realise I was going to have so much laughter today, um, and some really thoughtful preparations and for some deep um, human lived experience to share and make you think. So thank you everybody up here, thank you everybody out there, and as I said, I just invite, if there's anyone who has a couple of burning comments, we've probably got five minutes. That's fine too, I think we've, we've laughed ourselves silly. Thank you everybody. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.